Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that we sang a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a beautiful, a wonderfully biblically saturated hymn, uh, interestingly enough, written by an 18th century hairdresser. And its third verse runs like this. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's the heart, Lord, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And what really struck me about that song is the way that it so beautifully captures the tension of the Christian experience. On the one hand, we know that we love the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we also know that our heart, left to itself, is prone to wander. And unless Jesus tethered our, our hearts to him, we would drift away. And actually, that temptation, that sort of inbuilt drift or wandering, is why the letter to the Hebrews is such a wonderful gift to us. Because it is written to help Christians keep going and not drift from Jesus. And it does so in two ways. On the one hand, it, it explains the great truths of the Christian faith, the, the great message of the gospel, all that God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And then on the second hand, it, it exhorts us, it urges us, pleads with us, given all that God has done for us, all that is ours in him, that we would not turn away. So we have teaching and we have exhortation merged together. And we're going to see both of those elements in our text this, uh, this evening. And right at the heart of the message of Hebrews is really this remarkable claim, that if you remember from verse 2, that in these last days, God has spoken to us, to you and me, by his Son. And you remember that it was... It's not just that he's given us a bit of himself, but that he's given his full and final revelation. He's revealed himself to us in the person of his son. There's nothing more for God to give. And in revealing his son to us, he has also revealed his salvation plan. And we also saw that <coughs> this messenger, this son that has come with the message of the gospel from God, is unsurpassable in every single way. You might remember that uh, he was compared in verses 2 and 3 with the prophets who delivered the revelation in the Old Testament. And we saw how Jesus as the divine Son of God come in the flesh and now exalted to God's right hand far outstrips those human messages in power and dignity and authority. And it is in him that God has spoken to you and me. And in our verses today, in the first half of the passage at least, the author is developing that contrast, but not now with the prophets, but with angelic beings. And I wonder, as we had that passage read, whether that struck you as slightly surprising. It may be that you're not really familiar with uh, the Christian message. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. And this mention of angels might seem a bit strange or even confusing. And if it is, then I want to say you're very welcome to come and talk to anybody at the end and ask some questions about it. We'd be delighted to talk to you um, about that. But let me say, just as a, a brief sort of 
way of introduction is that the Bible unashamedly believes that as well as the visible created um, earth that we can see around us, there is a heavenly realm that is unseen, created by God, where he chooses to dwell and interact with his world. And within that heavenly realm, he has created the most awesome, fearsome creatures in the universe, and they are called angels. They're created to worship around his throne, and they are sent out into the world to serve his salvation purposes, to say, serve you and me, as we'll see a little later on in the passage. And what the writer wants us to see in this passage today is that Jesus, in whom God has spoken to us, is not only greater than any human being you can think, any prophet of old, but is greater than even the angels of heaven. And he is the one who has spoken to us. I've got two simple points this morning. The first, this evening, the first is that Jesus is greater than the angels. This is the first part of the passage. So you might remember from last week, we had this remarkable description, as I said, of Jesus in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. And it was like we were being given a CV or a resume describing the whole career of Jesus from his pre-existence with his Father in heaven, through his coming to earth and his death on the cross where he makes purification for sins, all through to his exaltation back to heaven to the right hand of his Father, where, verse 3, finished and said that he has now sat down on the throne of heaven, the heir of all creation. But if you notice, we left off one item on the list, and we had it read tonight. Verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It makes you wonder, maybe, isn't the Son of God always greater than the angels? Wasn't he the one who created the angels in the first place? Is he not the divine Son of God, living with his Father eternally? And the answer is yes, of course. That is true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is greater than the angels from eternity past. But the point is, as we'll see next week, that for a time... Jesus, the Son, was made lower than the angels as he entered our world as a human being, as a baby, in order to achieve our salvation by dying on a cross. But he then is raised to life, he ascends to heaven, and he is enthroned now at the right hand of God on high. And it is at that point that as a divine human being, as a man, that he again becomes greater than the angelic beings. He always was greater, and now it is fully displayed for all the world to see. And what happens in verses 5 to 14 is that the writer really wants to demonstrate that to us, to prove it to us, that this Jesus whom we worship and have heard from is indeed greater than the angels. And these verses depict an enthronement scene, a coronation scene in heaven. 
sure we saw the scenes, the pictures of King Charles III when he was coronated, when he became king. And everybody, I guess, if, particularly if you're British, would have liked a ticket to have been to that event. Well, it's as if tonight we are being invited into the heavenly throne room to witness the coronation of Jesus Christ. And what we hear at that coronation is that God, his Father, speaks to him on the completion of his work, and he declares certain things to be true about him. And you'll notice that as he does so, he does by quoting texts from the Old Testament. And maybe you're wondering, why would he do that? Why, did, why does the Father quote the Old Testament to his son at his enthronement in heaven? And I think the point is this, that when Jesus returns to his Father and is installed as king and heir over all things, it is fulfilling something that was promised in the Old Testament itself. The Old Testament itself looked forward to a king who would come, a human Messiah who would be more than a human, who would be divine, and who would fulfill all of God's purposes and would one day be installed on the throne of the universe. And this is what happened to Jesus. And this is why Jesus far outstrips the angels in every conceivable way. And notice then in verse 5, we see that now exalted in heaven, Jesus has this unique relationship with God and rules all things. So verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son You see, these are two Old Testament texts, Psalm 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And they are amongst the the most important verses in the whole of the Old Testament. Because they promised that one day God would send this, uh, this king into the world. And he would build a worldwide dynasty through a descendant of the king, David. And this son would enjoy a privileged relationship with God a unique relationship, a father-son relationship. And this king would rule over the earth and everything in them, every power and authority in the universe, bringing blessing to his people. And of course, we've said that is true in one sense of the divine son from all eternity, but now it is true of Jesus Christ as a man as he is exalted to heaven, now that he has completed his work on earth. And you see, in fact, his rule is so expansive and so complete that he even rules over death. Because, verse 6, he is the firstborn in heaven. He is the first to be raised to life, the first to triumph over death and give the promise and hope of life beyond death to others. And no angel can claim that for themselves. In fact, verse 6. The angels are commanded to worship him. But not only does Jesus rule all things with this unique relationship with God, but also he establishes a wonderful, everlasting, perfectly just kingdom that we are all invited to share and that will one day cover the whole earth. So this is verse 8. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions, anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus has brought a perfect kingdom. And there, you see, he's addressed not just as a human being, but as God himself. He has brought God's kingdom to pass in his exaltation to heaven. But even more than that, verses 10 through 12, he also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Those words come from Psalm 102, and if you go back, you'll see that it is a prayer of the psalmist praying that the Lord, God himself, would come to his people to redeem them, to build his kingdom. And the point of quoting these words about Jesus is to say that in the coming of Jesus into the world, God has brought that salvation to his people. It's a new start. It's like a new creation. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And you see, third, because all of this is true, one day every enemy of his and of ours, of the world, will be made subject to him. Verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's a quotation from Psalm 110. It's one of the most important psalms, perhaps the most important psalm, Old Testament text, both in Hebrews and in the New Testament for understanding the person and work of Christ. And it's a prayer of David looking forward to the establishment and the installation of a great heir and king over all of the universe. One whom God will put the enemies, his enemies under his feet. The one under whom death will be crushed. The one who will rule over all things and put all things right. And that king is Jesus. And right now, today, as we meet here, he is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, waiting for God, who will surely put his enemies under his feet. And you see, this is why Jesus, now enthroned in heaven as the king of all things, as the one who has brought God's saving kingdom, as the one who will one day triumph over all God's enemies. That is why he is greater than the angels. Because no angel, no matter how great or powerful or majestic or awesome or fearsome, ever has that position or has that power all that dignity. And you might be wondering, well, what all does all that have to do with me? What does the exaltation of Jesus over the angels in heaven have to do with me tonight? Well, just briefly, two things. First, this exalted king, the one who rules over all, is the one in whom God has revealed himself to you and to me. We've just come off the back of Christmas, and we, it's a wonderful season where we remember the birth of the baby Jesus in a manger. 
And I don't know about you, but I find it quite easy to relate to that idea of God coming as a baby into the world. It's, it's got a, something warm about it, something gentle. You think of Jesus as being meek and mild, come into the world to save sinners. And of course, that is true, and it is wonderful. But it's important that we don't forget that that baby didn't stay a baby. That baby grew up, died on a cross, and is now enthroned in heaven as king over all. And one day all of us will bow the knee to him, willingly or unwillingly. But second, and really to set us up for next week, the wonder of all of this really is, is in verse 14, I don't know if you saw it, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? It's almost like out of nowhere we are introduced into this heavenly scene. And I think the point of this is this, is that Jesus is the heir now of all of creation. And what he promises us, because he is exalted, is that we, one day, if we trust in him, if we are part of his kingdom, we will share or we will inherit that kingdom. What is true of Jesus now ruling over all things, raised to life, triumphing over death, in the presence of God, will be true of you and me. He is the heir and a unique heir, but we are included in his inheritance. And all of this explains my second point, really, which is that because Jesus is greater than the angels, so we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. See verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Because Jesus is the exalted king of all the universe, we must give him our undivided attention and the message that he brings. And do you see the danger in verse 1? The danger is actually that we could drift away from it. The picture here, I think, is of a harbour. And the harbour sort of represents the salvation that we've just been talking about. kingdom we're about to inherit. And we are like boats who are are moored just outside that harbour, about to go in, but we haven't quite got there yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back, and we are called to press on, to fix our eyes on making it into the harbour. And the danger is that as we're waiting, that we take our eyes off the ball. And the tides of, or currents of sin or the world and the devil drag us away so that instead of entering the harbour, we sail on past. We drift and we miss it. Almost without noticing. This is the first of five warning passages in the, in the letter to the Hebrews. And each of them, I'll be honest, are quite unsettling. And the temptation is, when you're preaching them, is to sort of water them down a little bit. 
But actually, these warnings are given to us for our good because God loves us and because he doesn't want us to drift from his son or from salvation. And what these warning passages are not saying is that there are genuine Christians who will fall away from Christ or not make it to heaven. The Bible tells us that God keeps all those who are his through whatever trials they are facing. But it is saying that there are some people who are exposed to the gospel, who experience something of the goodness of Jesus, who hear the preaching, who are members of a church, who for for all the world might look for a time like they are genuine followers of Jesus, but who eventually drift away. If you remember the parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4, where we hear of some who hear the word, hear the gospel with joy, but then when the trials and temptations of life come, they wither and die. That's what these warnings are talking about. And of course, the warning is so serious because drift is something that is so imperceptible. Few people wake up overnight and decide that they are no longer going to follow Jesus. We don't intend to drift. But what happens is that we just get busy with life. Maybe we get a new job, or or maybe our family expands. Maybe we've got a new hobby that's beginning to take up a lot of our time, and we, we just don't have time for the spiritual disciplines we had before, going to church, hearing the gospel being taught, meeting with fellow Christians. Maybe it's that we move to a new place and we just don't settle in a church. We hop around, but never really land somewhere. Maybe we just simply get absorbed in the busyness of life so that we stop giving Jesus and the gospel the attention he needs, it needs. And we neglect, verse 3, our spiritual lives. Perhaps there's a particular sin that we just decide is too hard to keep fighting and we harden our hearts. And you know, before we know it, we have begun to drift. So this is a a real warning and we're so used to ignoring warnings, aren't we? We're so used to thinking they don't really, we don't really need to hear them. It's like when we get on a plane and you hear the safety instructions at the start. None of us listen to them, do we? You know, no one really listens. We've got our headphones on, and we're looking at our phones, because we don't think it really matters. But I just want to say to you this morning, this, is a, uh, this evening, this is, a, this is a warning that really matters and that we each need to hear, including myself. Because did you see the consequences in verse 2? For since the message spoken through angels was binding... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? You see, one of the reasons angels are mentioned here and have such a prominent place is because they were involved in in giving the law of Moses, the old covenant that was given to Moses in Exodus. The angels were involved in communicating that to him. And that covenant came with consequences if you disobeyed. And the writer is saying, how much greater then do you think the consequences will be if you ignore the new covenant, the message 
the gospel message that Jesus, as the king and creator of all things, has brought to us. And the salvation that he has offered us, salvation from sin and a place in his new creation, how much greater will the consequences be if we ignore that message? You see, if you reject Jesus and turn from him, you are turning from the only one who can save you from your sins. To reject him leaves us in the position where we have to pay for our sins ourselves. And the Bible promises us that is judgment, just punishment. Do not drift. And I also want to say that this is not a theoretical thing. And I have a friend, and I'm going to call him, I'll call him James. Um, and we both were at university together. We grew immensely in our understanding of the gospel together. We served together in the Christian Union at our university. We did mission trips together. He was as zealous for Jesus as you can possibly imagine. But then over the course of a, a, a period of years, about 10 years, uh, he did begin to drift. And he, it was, for him, it was, there was a particular hard time in his life. And there was a particular sin, a, a battle for him that he just grew weary of. And over the course of about 10 years, he just cut off his Christian friends and stopped going to church. And today, he is nowhere with the Lord. My prayer is that for him, that is a temporary backsliding. And the Bible says that is possible. You can temporarily backslide, and God will graciously bring you back. And that is my prayer for him. But at the same time, the Bible doesn't give any reassurance to those who turn away from Jesus and don't press on to the end. God has spoken to us by his own Son, the divine heir of creation, now exalted over the angels, and he will return to establish his kingdom on earth. He offers us a place in it. He will bring salvation, but he will also come to judge his enemies. And so the writer says, pay the most careful attention to what you have heard. To pay attention means that we keep alert. To pay attention means that we pay heed. It means that we are constantly vigilant of our hearts. It's really the opposite of the attitude of neglect, of verse 3, or nonchalance to the gospel. It's the opposite of that attitude that takes the preaching on a Sunday or my own Bible reading as no more interesting or important than my favorite social media feed or news outlet. Paying attention means keeping our eyes on Christ as, as we are able to, keeping our eyes on the cross, keeping the gospel, keeping this vision of chapter 1, verse 5 through 14 before our eyes as we are able. Paying attention means more than just the occasional glance at a Christian blog or listening to an online sermon here or there. Paying attention involves undivided attention. And very simple things means making time to respond to the Bible myself in my own time or with my spouse or with my family. 
It means meeting with other Christians to encourage each other to keep going with the Lord when things are hard. It means repenting of my sin when I see it. It means asking for help if I'm struggling. It means responding to the sermons each week that we hear, even if the preacher or the preaching is not quite to our personal taste. You can think of a million ways in which we can pay attention to the gospel. The point is, pay attention. And so I just want to, as we close, just address three groups of people here very briefly. The first of all, there'll be some here who aren't actually Christians and you're just looking in and wondering what this whole Christian faith is all about. And for you, the message is exactly the same as for everybody else in a way. It is pay attention to what you have heard. You have heard something tonight of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And you cannot treat it with neglect. God offers you forgiveness from sins. His son died for you. He offers you a place in his kingdom. He will return one day to judge the earth. That is a message like no other. And so for you, paying attention will mean that you at least need to explore it a little further and find out more. There's the event on Wednesday night designed for you to find out more. And then there's a Christianity Explored course which is starting up after that, which is an opportunity for you just to ask your questions to find out if what we're saying about Jesus is actually true. Second, there are some here who will know actually in their hearts that they have either begun to drift or are a very long way down the road of drifting from God and from Jesus. Maybe you were once going strong, maybe once you were a core member of a church somewhere, but you've been neglecting your spiritual life. And you need to urgently hear this word. Pay careful attention. You are drifting from the one who is exalted over the angels. Do not refuse to listen. Tonight is the night, today is the day, Hebrews will say, to act and to change and to respond and to repent. And the wonder is, Jesus does not, does not hold us away. If you know that you are drifting, if there is some sin that you have got trapped in, if you've hardened your heart for years, He loves to welcome you back. There is nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven. Please pay attention. And finally, many of us here are living faithful Christian lives. And maybe you're finding the Christian life hard and it is difficult to keep going and you've got questions and you're struggling, but you trust Jesus, you love him, you follow him, you're doing your best to serve him. God knows how hard it is And next week, we're going to see much more comfort as we see that Jesus is our great high priest who is with us in the midst of our suffering. But the point is, keep paying attention to him. Don't rest on your laurels. I say that to myself, say it to the staff team, because we know that we are prone to wander. I know from my own heart, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the wand the one I love. Keep paying attention. Keep reading the Bible. Keep encouraging others. Keep meeting with them. Keep short accounts with sin. 
Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us by his Son, who is greater than the angels. So tonight, all of us, we must pay the most careful attention. We pray quickly. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, who has come into the world for our sins, but is now enthroned at your right hand, the promise, the guarantee that all things will be put right. But help us also remember that he is the one that you have spoken to us, and may we see how precious, how great he is. And so may we keep paying attention to him and the good news that he brings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.